Good morning. First Corinthians is what we're going to take a look at again this morning. So if you want to be turning over there, we'll look at verses 10 through 24. More selectively, certain verses from that particular section. I want to say thanks to Brian for your class this morning. Appreciate that. Good job. A lot of interesting things to talk about in First Corinthians, isn't there, Brian? <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, topics to touch on. And Colby, thank you for your comments at the table and uh, your sort of lead in the scripture, scripture that you used. We're going to be taking a look at that also. First Corinthians, title of the lesson is Following Though Flawed. And so as we uh, take a look at this book, and from what we know in regards to the scriptures and so forth, God sent his son, a perfect son as Colby also mentioned at the table this morning, and that God's plan is perfect. Corinth, a church of God, was following, but they had flaws. And what kept them coming back? And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Three points we want to take a look at. Striving to follow. I believe that's what they were doing. That's what we strive to do. They were flawed followers and then focus on the focus. So I'll just put that first point up there. Striving to follow. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now. And we've recognized that they have all kinds of controversies within that local congregation. And in verses 10 through 24, which John read for us this morning, the very first one, verse 10, he's urging them to be of the same mind and of the same judgment and that they all be joined together. In verse 13, he will ask the question, was Christ divided? And then in verse 24, he says that Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. Trying to emphasize, put your focus on Jesus Christ, follow after him and all be joined together. But they, they struggle and they have issues. And we've talked about the fact that within this letter, and we're going to get there, in, in chapter 5, there's immorality. Chapter 6, there's lawsuits that are going on. There's issues about marriage and questions and so forth. There's even the Lord's Supper and they're struggling with that and spiritual gifts and misunderstanding about the resurrection. All kinds of issues. So let's think for just a moment or get you to think with me. If you could kind of transport back to that day and time and you were in the city of Corinth on Sunday morning and you got up and decided along with you and your wife you're going to go to church and you walk into this particular congregation and there's some people that are sitting over here and there's some people sitting over here and there's others sitting in this section and they say, well, we're kind of following this guy and we follow this guy and some of us are following Christ. And, so, and we're like, well, where are we supposed to sit? <laughs> and then you kind of hear rumors while you're listening before service begins and you're, they're talking about so, brother so-and-so is suing brother so-and-so and they're going to court. And then there's talk about immorality that's going on. And then finally you kind of make it through the service and it comes time for the Lord's Supper. And some people have already partaken. And other people are having, it looks like a common meal. And you're kind of wondering, what is going on here? And so you get up that morning afterwards and you go out and you think, that was a mess. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going back there. 
But now let's suppose you are not visiting there. You live there. (laughs) And this is the only congregation around. And so each week you walk in and it's just sort of disarray. (laughs) But now you've received this letter from the Apostle Paul and he's trying to straighten some things out. And you've been in the middle of this mess for a while. Let me ask you. What are you going to do? And let me ask you this. Why do you keep coming back? Week after week after week. When all of this is going on. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1 and verses 3 through 7. And this is a passage that we oftentimes reference whenever we talk about consolation in Christ. We also talk about tribulation coming from without and so forth. Listen to what Paul says over in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, beginning at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is saying we have received comfort, consolation from God, and we're trying to extend that to others who might be suffering through struggles and tribulation. God helped us. We want to help you. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, It is for your consolation and for your salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you also will partake of the consolation. Isn't that good? I think that's great. Paul says, we, apostles, we've suffered some hardships some difficulties. But God has comforted us. And we know that you suffer through things and that there's tribulations and struggles, there's persecutions from the world that comes upon you. And and so we want to share the consolation of Christ with you so that you might be able to endure this. You suffer through these. You partake in the sufferings. But you will also... Partake in the consolation. And we think, that's good. Because as Christians, and we're starting to notice it more and more, persecution is coming. They suffered through persecution. And so you look at that and think, that's good. But now here's the question. Persecution comes from the outside, right? Troubles come from the outside, right? What happens if that persecution comes from the inside? What happens if that trouble comes from the 
inside. You follow what I'm saying? So we're back in 1 Corinthians. Where's the trouble? It's inside. It's not coming from outside. It's coming from inside. And so you once again, I ask you, you ask yourself, why should I keep coming back? I think it's interesting. We've studied the book of Acts, right? And Paul comes to Corinth on the second missionary journey. And he's concerned about what's going on there. He's preaching the gospel there. And God appears to him there. And he gives him consolation and gives him comfort. And he encourages Paul, don't leave. (laughs) I want you to stay in this city. And what does he tell him in Acts the 18th chapter about verses 18 and 19? He says, I have many people in this city. Well, guess what? Here they are. (laughs) That's 1 Corinthians. There's your people. Deal with it. First Corinthians 11 chapter. This is also a passage that we read frequently. First Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll begin at verse 23. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We gather at the Lord's table and we say, turn to First Corinthians 11. And verse 23. Clayton, I think I remember here recently. You read that, didn't you? (laughs) Okay, now listen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul just say? That which I received. That the Lord Himself, the night in which He betrayed, established, instituted this memorial. And He took the bread and He said, this is My body. And He took the cup after that and He said, this is My blood of the new covenant. This is for you. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Me. And you proclaim my death until I come. In the midst of this letter, Paul reminds them of what Jesus did for them. When he came, what he did. And he's coming back. And he reminds him of that. Do you think there's a reason why the Lord instituted this 
And He wants us to do it every week. As you think about the letter to the Corinthians, when you think about all that is going on, can you see the importance of why He might want them to do that every week? Keep the focus on Jesus Christ and what He did for you. And He's coming back. John the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 3. And you think about John 14, but you think about John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. (laughs) Big section of John's Gospel. And you know what those chapters cover? They do not cover years. They don't cover months. They don't cover weeks. They don't cover days. You know what they cover? Hours. Hours. The last hours that Jesus was with His disciples, His apostles. And He's telling them that He's getting ready to go away. And in John 14 and verses 1 through 3, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. For in My Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be there also. Last night he's with me. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. I don't want you to forget that. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter now. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. In victory. So Paul starts this letter and he urges them to be united in Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, he tells them that Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. And then he concludes this letter reminding them of the resurrection and when Christ returns and how this corruptible must put on incorruption. That's what is awaiting us. And in the middle of this letter, he reminds them of the Lord's Supper. 
Christ. The power of God, the wisdom of God. Christ. This is what He did for you. Christ. He's coming again. And when He comes, in the twinkling of an eye, you're going to change. And this corruption shall put on incorruption. Immortality, or mortality, shall put on immortality. Isn't that something? And so Paul begins, and in the middle, and in the end. What's he focus on? Jesus Christ, and what He has done for us, and what's going to happen when this life's over. Isn't that amazing? Strive to follow. But now then, we get down to the difficult part. The actual following part. Mark the 14th chapter. So I'm going to read to you from verses 27 through 31. Mark 14. Beginning at verse 27. My fingers are too slick. Mark 14, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, likewise. Those same hours that I referenced from John, this is a part of those same hours. This is after Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. And he is telling them, this very night, the shepherd is going to be struck down and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter says, no, it won't happen. Not me. I'll be there, faithful to the end. You can count on me, Lord. And they're all, we're with him. (laughs) He said, no. That's not the way it's going to be. He says, this very night, I'm going to be struck down. You're all going to scatter. During the institution of the Lord's Supper, he had told them that one of them was going to betray him and they're all asking, well, "Who is it me, Lord? And Jesus says, the one who dips with me, that's, it was Judas. I have a book uh, at home. It's entitled, Heaven So Near and Heaven So Far. It's a book about Judas. Judas. He walked with him. Talked with him. Witnessed his miracles. Saw his compassion. He kissed him. Heaven was so near. And then he betrayed him. But on that night, They all fled. 
And you take a look at Judas and you say, oh, he was a flawed follower. But then you take a look at the rest of the apostles. And you have to say, they were flawed too. And whenever you think about those apostles and them spending three years with Him, them walking with Him, talking with Him, seeing the miracles that He's performed, how close they were with Him, and then in that hour when He is in need the most, they all flee. So let me ask you, what do you think about that? Do you have sympathy for them? Do you have empathy for them? Do you have a little disgust for them? You were so close. Boy, if I'd have been there, <laughs> if I'd have saw the things they saw, wouldn't have been me. You sometimes feel that. And yet you take a look at them and they flee. His greatest hour and they can't be a friend. But here's the thing. Every one of them, every one of them, except Judas, because he couldn't, every one of them came back. And you got to ask yourself, why'd they come back? Because I take a look at them on that night and I throw out my hands and I go, what a mess. They were a mess. And I look at Corinth and I go, that's a mess. Well, Corinth wasn't the first one to be a mess. The apostles were a mess. And yet they all came back. So let's fast forward just a little bit. Let's think a little bit more recently. Some of this is in my lifetime. Some of you may have never heard of this. You'll say, I wasn't born then. <laughs> Do you remember a couple by the name of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker? <laughs> in the name of religion. Right? And you look at that and you think, what a mess. A little more on the dark side. Do you remember a man by the name of Jim Jones in Guyana? What a mess. A little more recently, do you remember a guy in Waco, Texas by the name of David Koresh? What a mess. How about Jimmy Swagger? How about the Moonies out in California? We look at all that and we think, what a mess. In the name of religion, what a mess. But now coming just a little closer, you take a look at the religious world today and the denominations. Are we all together doctrinally? And you look at it and you say, what a mess. And so is it any wonder why there's some cynicism within society whenever they look at religion? 
And they think, what a mess. I've even heard a fellow say one time, you all first get it together first and then come talk to me. You all are a mess. So when you hear that, do you hang? Do you hang your head? Yeah, it's a mess. But at the same time, we keep coming back, don't we? We keep coming back. So in Luke, the 22nd chapter, Luke also is recording the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you know what they were arguing about? As Jesus is telling them that he's giving his body, he's giving his life, he's giving his blood for them. They're arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. And after they leave that upper room, they go to Gethsemane. And what does Jesus do? He asks them, pray for me. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray. I want you to pray for me. And while he's over there praying and he's sweating like drops of blood, what are they doing? They're all asleep. (laughs) Y'all are a mess. And then... When Judas shows up with the soldiers, Peter panics, <laughs> grabs a sword, takes a swing, and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus said, put, put the sword away. <laughs> and when they see that's not going to work, then they all, they all scatter. They all run. And then in the next cringeworthy moment, We see Peter at the house, outside the house of the high priest, standing by the fire, warming himself where there are others. And there's a young girl who said, he's one of them. And what's Peter say? Not me. She goes, oh yeah, you're one of them. Uh Uh-uh. And when she presses the point, he begins to curse and say, I do not know him. And the third time he denies him. The rooster crows for the second time. And you know what happens at that moment? He and Jesus lock eyes. Jesus doesn't say a word. And Peter goes out. And he weeps. He knew he failed him. You know what I find really interesting about this and as you think about the apostles and them being with Jesus and how close they were with them and how they listened to his teachings and I think about the gospel of John and I think about all that space that is taken up there by John and Jesus spending those final hours with them and talking with them. And this is on Thursday night going into Friday morning when he's going to be crucified and it's just been just a few days earlier. On Sunday, we just talked about that in another lesson, that he has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and they are all throwing down their coats and they're throwing down palm branches and they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. The king 
is here. And in the interim, Jesus tells them again. This is not the first time. He tells them again. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And in Mark's gospel, I go before you into Galilee. I'll see you there. Let me ask you, was there ever anything that Jesus told them that didn't come true? Had they ever seen him perform miracles? Has he ever raised anybody from the dead? Yeah. And so Jesus tells them, this is what's going to happen. And on that night, it's unfolding rapidly now. He's arrested. He's going to stand trial. The next morning, he's going to be before Pilate. And the multitudes are going to be there. And they're going to be shouting, crucify, crucify. And where's the apostles? I don't know. (laughs) Nobody else does either. And so they lead him away to Golgotha. And the Romans nail him to a cross. And after he dies, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, he comes and he makes a request for the body. And he's granted it. And he takes him and he's laid in a new tomb. What do you think the apostles should have been doing at that moment? Huddle up. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. He just died. Third day, he's coming out of the grave. Get the crowds together. Tell everybody you know, you do not want to miss this. Sunday morning, you want to be there. And outside that tomb, when that earthquake started, and that stone started to move, It should have looked like a rock concert outside of there. And when he stepped out, it should have been to the roars. Jerusalem should have shook with the shout. But instead, Crickets. Until some women show up. Jesus speaks to Mary. And you know what he tells her? Go tell the others. I'm headed to Galilee. See you there. Just like he had told them. Just like he had told them. So if they were faithful, what should have they been doing? Get ready. Because <laughs> he's coming. And we want to be there. And we don't want to miss it. But instead, they're hiding. They're hiding. They were followers of Christ. But they were flawed. 
somehow they didn't understand exactly the way this was all supposed to unfold. They didn't understand exactly what they were supposed to be doing. So let me give you this illustration. So there was a young man who decided that he wanted to preach for a living. He was wanting to become a minister. He and his wife were, after he got out of school, they were looking for that first job, so to speak, that first congregation to work with. He found that, had a start date, and was planning on going to work for them. And a good friend of theirs, this is denominational, so don't take this the wrong way. A good friend of his, especially, he brought a special, expensive chalice. Goblet had a cross on the side of it. Gave it to him as a gift. Said, I want you to remember this first job. I want you to remember your first congregation. I want you to remember the first time you ever have communion with them. I'm giving you this. That's kind of a memento. Keepsake. He was very appreciative. Him and his wife both. That was very nice, very kind of sentimental thing. And so, they were in the process of moving into their new place. So as they were moving and they were taking things to their new location and so forth, his wife grabbed that and just kind of wrapped it in a towel. And then she sat it in the back seat along with some other things. And so they're going in and coming out, going and getting things. And he just kind of reaches in the back seat not knowing and he grabs that towel, and he not with the most care. He starts to pull it out, and the towel unravels. And guess what? It hits the driveway. His wife is standing there, he's standing there, and they look down, and it's, ah, and it's in pieces. And immediately, He says, why didn't you tell me you wrapped that in a towel? Which she replied, couldn't you tell what was in that? (laughs) And then they stopped. And they said, let's see if we can glue it together. So they picked it up. They glued it together. And after the emotions kind of vanished, (laughs) calmed down, he said, I should have been more careful as I reached in there. She said, oh, well, I should have told you that I had wrapped it and laid it in there. And then they said, you know what? I think we should keep this kind of as a reminder. And so they keep it on their mantle. And the reminder is this. We are like that vessel. We are broken. We are flawed. But God fills us with His gift for us and that we share with others. We're not perfect. But what's inside comes from a God that is perfect with a son that was perfect with a spirit that brings that perfect message
So focus on the focus. In Matthew chapter 26, about verse 56, and Mark 14, about verse 50, it says essentially the same thing, that on that night when Jesus was betrayed, they all, they all fled. And as you think about that last week and you read about what takes place there, the apostles kind of stumble and bumble along through that final week, not really understanding exactly what all is going on, even though they have walked with Jesus for three years, and He has told them exactly what is going on and what is going to take place. And yet, at that moment, when He was counting on them the most, they ran. But you think about the multitudes also. All those people who had followed Him. All those people had been there whenever He rode into Jerusalem and they're all shouting, Hosanna. Where are they now? (laughs) They were followers. But they're not there now. So let me ask you. What's going to bring them back? You know, one thing's for certain at the close of the Gospels, so to speak, especially at the close of that week, they're not looking like heroes. But what's amazing, within days, just a few weeks, they'll be back. And this time, they won't be denying Him. They'll be proclaiming Him. And if you threaten them, they don't care. You threaten them with death, they're staying with it. They're going to declare that testimony. So what brought them back? So as you think about that final week, actually, the testimony about them It's what compels me. That's what helps me to come back. Because as I see their flaws, I also see their transformation. I see them flee, and then I see them come back to follow. You know why? It's because of that historical that historical fact that took place. You want to know what that historical fact is that took place? It's when Jesus walked out of that tomb. That's a historical fact. And that's what brought them back. And that's what keeps us coming back. All of those events that took place in and around Jerusalem, they happened in time. They happened in space. That's history. And Jesus stepping out of that grave, that's a historical fact. Christianity in total, and your faith and my faith, is anchored in that historical fact. It does not depend 
on somebody else being flawless. It does not depend upon my feelings. It does not depend upon my preferences. It does not depend upon my opinion or yours. It does not depend on mine and your ability to do church perfectly. Faith, Christianity, depends on that fact. Now you ask me, do you believe that the faith once for all time has been delivered? Absolutely. Jude 3 says so. Do we have everything we need? Absolutely. 2 Timothy 3 says so. Do I believe that there is one church and there's one body? Absolutely. Paul will talk about that in 1 Corinthians 12. Do I believe that the Lord has set forth the organization for His church in the New Testament? Absolutely. Philippians 1 and verse 1. Has He set forth its worship? Absolutely. Has He set forth the fellowship that we enjoy and we partake in? Absolutely. But ask me another question. Do I believe that we execute the faith flawlessly? No. We're flawed. We strive many times, many times. We do not execute it as it should be executed. But the concrete fact of the resurrection it's what keeps me coming back. It's what brought them back. Why did they get up from their failures? Why did they get up from their flaws? Why did they get up from discouragement and disappointment and come back? Because of the resurrection. A historical fact. A risen Christ shocked them. Convicted them. And they came back. Christ took broken vessels and put the truth in them. Filled them up. And restored them, and they share that with the rest of the world. The gospel is not made true or false by those who proclaim it and those who struggle to live it. The gospel is true all on its own. That's what keeps us coming back. That's what keeps us trying. Following, though flawed. It's been that way since the beginning. I want to extend the invitation to any and all that are here this morning.
The Gospel truth is Jesus Christ overcame death. And we have that hope of eternal life. Together, we strive to live out the faith and encourage one another. If you're ready to obey Him, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.